following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world, so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. This morning, as we turn our attention to the Word of God, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Proverbs chapter 4. I want to begin by reading verses 20 through 27. This is the fourth sermon in a series that I've entitled, Keeping the Heart, which is taken from Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23. I've entitled today's message, and it's kind of a Puritan title, the special seasons of life that demand greater diligence in keeping our hearts. The special seasons of life that demand greater diligence in keeping our hearts. This is part one of several messages I'll give on these particular seasons. And so as always, I invite you as the people of God and those of you who are not yet his people by grace, I invite you to hear and heed the life-imparting faith-sustaining, and mind-renewing words of the true and living God. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 20 through 27. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them, and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech, and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward, and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Grace Community Church, these are the words of our holy God. Thanks be to God. It's common knowledge that life is a journey. It's an expedition. It's a pilgrimage through this world, for some it's a very short journey, for others it can be a very long journey. But this journey is filled with many different seasons. And by season, I'm referring to indefinite or unspecified periods of time when we are faced with various experiences. King Solomon of Israel put it like this. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, 
a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to be cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. And yet we know that over and above every season we go through, Our unchanging and eternal God sits enthroned in unparalleled sovereignty, working all things according to the counsel of his will, working all things together for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Solomon also said in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 14, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other. After God permitted Satan to strip Job of his prosperity and his progeny, his sons and his daughters, and eventually his own health, you might recall Satan striking Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Job's wife witnessed this man still worshiping God and still walking with God in his integrity. And she said to Job, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. And do you remember Job's reply to her? You speak as one of the foolish women speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil, a word translated elsewhere as disaster and calamity. And lest we accuse Job of misspeaking, the very next God-breathed words are these, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Good and evil, good and calamity, good and disaster come from the hand of God. Job understood that God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. As one modern affirmation of faith puts it, God upholds and governs all things, from galaxies to subatomic particles, from the forces of nature to the movements of nations, and from the public plans of politicians to the secret acts of solitary persons. All in accord with his eternal, all-wise purposes to glorify himself, yet in such a way that he never sins, nor ever condemns a person unjustly, but that his ordaining and governing all things is compatible with the moral accountability of all persons created in his image. Life is a journey filled with a vast 
array of different seasons, each of which is appointed by God for the glory of his name and the good of each and every one of his people. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not in Christ. You wouldn't be numbered among God's people this morning. And you say, well, what about me? What about everything I'm going through? Is there any meaning? Is there any purpose to any of it? Well, let me just say that as long as your heart remains hard and closed off to God, you, not God, are opposing the very purpose of your existence. You were made to know him. You were made to be satisfied in him. Your heart was made to find rest in him. But because of your hard and unrepentant heart, all you're doing is storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So in a sense, yes, all your hardships, all your heartaches, all your hard times, all your tears, all your tribulations, all your sufferings and all your sorrows, and even all your temporary joys and happiness will ultimately culminate and conclude with you being eternally broken and banished from the favorable presence of the God who graciously offers sinners like you eternal salvation and everlasting satisfaction in the presence of his all-satisfying glory. By forfeiting and rejecting the very purpose of your existence, you have made it so that unless you repent of your stubbornness and your sin, everything you go through is absolutely meaningless for you. And that's tragic. That's heartbreaking. And that's on you. You see, if the Bible teaches that concerning those who love God and are called according to his purpose, that everything works together for good, Romans 8.28, then the exact opposite is true concerning those of you who love your sin and reject the call to turn to the living Christ, that everything works together for your eternal misery. And yet, in his astonishing kindness, and in his breathtaking mercy, God has called you to be present this morning, to hear his voice calling you to his magnanimously generous and forgiving heart. He offers you eternal life this morning. He offers you full and free forgiveness. He offers you a new life. He offers you a place at his table of infinite delights. If you will but come, you who have done nothing to earn his favor and everything to deserve his wrath, he calls you to come to him, to seek him while he may be found, to seek him, to find him. He sent his son to live the perfectly righteous life that you could never live and to then die the most humiliating death that one could die. The praise of angels became the laughing stock of men. The holy and blameless one took the blame for sinners. The one who upholds the universe 
bore the infinite weight of our sin and our shame. The high and lofty one was humbled and brought low in order to raise up and reconcile sinners back to God. The author of life was willing to unite himself with a human body so that he could taste death in its fullness in the place of his people. Consider the price that he paid and how low he was willing to go in order to save sinners like you and the rest of us. As Thomas Brooks writes, that Christ should come from the eternal bosom of his Father to a region of sorrow and death. That God should be manifested in the flesh. The Creator made a creature. That he that was clothed with glory should be wrapped in rags of flesh. That he that filled heaven should be cradled in a manger. That the God of strength should be weary that the judge of all flesh should be condemned, that the God of life should be put to death, that he that is one with his father should cry out of misery, oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, that he that had the keys of death and hell should lie imprisoned in the grave of another, having in his lifetime nowhere to lay his head nor after death to lay his body. And all this, Brooks says, for man, for fallen man, for miserable man, for worthless man, is beyond the thoughts of created natures. He goes on and says, The sharp, the universal and continual sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ from the cradle to the cross does above all other things speak out the transcendent love of Jesus Christ To poor sinners. That wrath, he says, that great wrath, that fierce wrath, that pure wrath, that infinite wrath, that matchless wrath of an angry God that was so terribly impressed upon the soul of Christ quickly spent his natural strength and turned his moisture into the drought of summer. And yet all this wrath he patiently underwent that sinners might be saved and that he might bring many sons to glory. Oh, today, if you hear his voice calling you to himself, calling you to let go of your sin, calling you to trade this world for the world to come, If you hear his voice calling you to let him wash you clean and make you new, calling you to lay down your rebellion and to let him spread his robe of everlasting righteousness over you, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Do not harden your heart. This morning, I want to consider those special seasons of life that demand our utmost diligence in keeping our hearts. I have argued previously that this is something that we're to do at all times. However, there are seasons in our lives as the people of God, periods of time, sometimes short, sometimes long, when our hearts are more prone to go one way or another based upon our circumstances. And we need to be aware of what those seasons are and how we are to guard our hearts 
in these particular seasons and situations. Now, obviously, time prevents me from being able to be exhaustive this morning. However, I just trust that what we do cover today is sufficient to equip you with everything good so that no matter what season of life you find yourself in today or this week or this month, you as a Christian are prepared to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him and bearing fruit in every good work. As we look at Proverbs 4.23 again, which says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. We are asking the question, when? When are we to keep our hearts with all vigilance? Again, on the one hand, the answer is all the time. But I think getting down to the specifics is necessary because of the fact that we do find ourselves in different seasons and in different situations all the time. When our hearts are faced with an assortment of different dangers and temptations, And we need to be equipped with the truth of the word of God if we are to effectively guard our hearts in those particular situations and under such circumstances. This morning, we're just going to consider four seasons of life that require our utmost diligence in keeping and guarding our hearts. And so let's dive into it. Number one, we are to keep our hearts with all vigilance in seasons of peace and prosperity. In seasons of peace and prosperity. When everything seems to be going well, when there's peace, when there's prosperity, when there's plenty, when financially it's comfortable and even at times more than comfortable, We are to guard our hearts. God allows his people to go through seasons of peace. In fact, I would argue that it's God's will for us to live in a state of peace, both internally and externally. Our Lord Jesus did say that in this world, we will have tribulation. We will have trouble. But the word also teaches us that we should strive to live in a state of peace. Listen to a few passages. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and in Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Romans chapter 14, verse 9 says, let us then pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. The context obviously is within the life of the church. But 1 Timothy takes us beyond the life of the church. 1 Timothy 2 verses 1 and 2 says this. First of all, then, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. If our lives are at peace, both internally and externally, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're doing something wrong. 
If you're living a godly life, living as salt and living as light in a twisted and perverted generation, persecutions will come and go. But by and large, I believe it's safe to say from a biblical perspective that God desires for us to to lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. In times of peace, however, consider the dangers and the temptations that threaten the heart. Number one, in times of peace, the heart can easily begin to take God's good gifts for granted and to become ungrateful. It's easy in times of peace for the heart to begin to take for granted God's good gifts and to become ungrateful. When we read Psalm 107, again and again we find the people of God crying out to God when times are hard. Hard times have a way of pointing the heart heavenward, do they not? But when times are peaceful, it's easy to become complacent. It's easy to begin to take things for granted. And so we must keep our hearts in a state of overflowing gratitude and thankfulness in seasons of peace and prosperity. First Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances. Is that something you are presently doing? Are you a thankful person? Would people look at you and talk about you and say, I don't know about that individual, but I know this. They're a thankful person. They're full of gratitude. They're always giving thanks. Every time they pray, they're quick to give thanks for this and for that. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 20 says that we're to give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Psalm 30 in particular, David celebrates his prosperity and the fact that he seems to be immovable like a mountain. He's mindful of God's favor and he's mindful of God's grace in his life. And yet he says, sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. And he concludes by saying, O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. I will give thanks to you forever. In a state of favor and grace and peace and stability, David is found to be giving thanks. In Psalm 52, as David celebrates his physical and spiritual peace and prosperity, he likens himself to a green olive tree in the house of his God. And he says to God, I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. When times are good, when peace is overflowing, is your heart filled with thankfulness? Secondly, in times of peace and prosperity, the heart can be tempted to forget God. The heart can be tempted to forget God. In Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9, the writer, Agur, offers up the following prayer. He says, remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest 
I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Agar understood that when riches are overflowing, when food is abundant, that it's easy to be full and to say, who's the Lord? Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8, the fifth book of the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 8. When God was preparing to bring Israel through the Jordan River and into the promised land, he delivered the following message to the people through Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 8, beginning in verse 11, he says, Take care, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have given me this wealth. You shall remember that the Lord your God, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. Underscore that, underline it, remember it. It is he who gives you the power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. What's sad is that by the end of Deuteronomy, God turns from simply warning the people to actually prophesying and telling the people what they're actually going to do. Listen to Deuteronomy 31 and verse 20. The Lord is no longer warning the people. He's saying what they're going to do. The Lord says, For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. It's tragic. In Luke chapter 12, coming into the New Testament, Jesus gave the parable of the rich fool who, because of his preoccupation with the abundance of his possessions, gave no thought Zero thought to the state of his soul before God. It was the last thing on his mind. One of the most painful sections to read in the word of God is the book of Judges. The book of Judges. Reading it can be somewhat depressing because we see the people of Israel continually doing what's right in their own eyes. And one of the often repeated phrases in that book is, so the land had rest for 40 years. A little while later, so the land had rest for 80 years. The land had rest for 40 years. The land had rest for another 40 years. And this rest was owing to the fact that God 
intervened in the life of Israel. He sent a deliverer, a judge, and he brought peace and prosperity to the land. But as soon as God's appointed judge died, we read again and again things like this. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers walked. They turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. The people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Berit their God. You see, after 40 years of peace and prosperity, after 80 years, after 40 years, after another 40 years of peace and prosperity, they quickly forgot God and turned back to their idols. How easy it is to forget God when times are good. And how do we prevent our hearts from falling into this rut? Number one, by constantly giving thanks to God for every good and perfect gift. It's impossible to be overly grateful. It is impossible to give too much thanks. It is impossible to be overflowing with gratitude. In fact, the temptation is to be less and less thankful. How do we prevent this? Number two, by praising him from whom all blessings flow. A man cannot receive a single thing, Jesus said, unless it's given to him from above. Or rather, John chapter 3 says that. Thirdly, in seasons of peace and prosperity, not only will our hearts be tempted to forget God, but they'll be tempted to be haughty and to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. They'll be tempted to be haughty, lifted up, proud, and to set and fix their hopes on the uncertainty of those riches. Psalm 62 verse 10 says, If riches increase, set not your heart on them. If riches abound, don't let your heart gravitate towards them. Thank God for them, but don't love them. Thank God for them, but don't trust them. Thank God for them, but do not find your security in them because the Lord gives and the Lord takes away in a matter of moments. Just ask Job. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. It's interesting how quickly our hearts lean towards that which makes us comfortable. That which makes us feel secure and safe. Our hearts, like magnets, are drawn towards security and comfort and wealth and stability. And it's not a bad thing. Our hearts were made to do that, but they were made to find that security and stability in God, the giver of all good things. Beware, brothers and sisters, because this is where idolatry begins. It begins in the heart. Idolatry always begins in the heart. It begins with covetousness. In fact, Paul says, beware of covetousness, which is idolatry. It begins in the heart. Six times in the book of Ezekiel, God connects idolatry to the heart of his people. And it's no wonder why John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory. It's an idol factory. Whatever brings pleasure, whatever brings ease, whatever brings comfort and security and stability is what the heart will lean towards. 
But brothers and sisters, physical riches and physical prosperity and external comforts don't come to us by themselves. They are gifts from God. And we must never forget that. And so the heart is to rest not in those things, but in God who freely gives us all these things to enjoy. And by the way, we in America often talk about the rich and the poor, but compared to the rest of the world, everyone in this room is rich, wealthy. I don't care if you're barely making it. Compared to the rest of this planet, you have riches and you have wealth and you have abundance. It's so easy for our hearts to overlook the giver and to be preoccupied with the gifts themselves. And Paul commanded Timothy saying, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. You see, the temptation is to be haughty. And he also says, charge them not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You see, there are some periods in the history of the church where Riches and wealthy people are viewed in such a negative light. Paul doesn't say, tell them to repent because they're rich. He says, no, just tell them not to be haughty and not to trust in the uncertainty of their riches. Because it's God who gives us freely all these things to enjoy. He says, the rich people in your congregation, they are to do good. In other words, they're not just to look in upon themselves and spend their riches on themselves. They're to use their riches to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share. If you can find a rich person who is not haughty, whose hope isn't on the uncertainty of riches, who is rich in good works, and who is generous and who is willing and eager to share, that's a godly man. That's a godly woman. Paul says if they do that, they are storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Not only do riches tempt the heart to forget God, but they can lead the heart to become haughty and lifted up, complacent and greedy. And the remedy that Paul sets forth is threefold. Number one, they are to set their hopes on God. Number two, they are to be rich in good works. That is, they are to live godly lives, fruitful lives. And number three, they are to be generous with their riches. Well, in seasons of peace and prosperity, if we are to keep our hearts from forgetting God and from hoping in the uncertainty of riches, we are to remember that as 1 Samuel 2.7 says, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He is the one. And as 1 Chronicles 29, 12 says, riches and honor come from God. We are to remember James 1, 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And friends, we should never desire to be rich. We should never desire to be rich. 1 Timothy 6, 9 says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. 
It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many pangs. Remember that Jesus looked around one day at his disciples and said, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Why did he say that? Because he knows the tendency of the human heart to forget God and to prefer riches. He knows the tendency of the human heart to set its hope on riches once riches are acquired. In seasons of peace and in seasons of prosperity, we are to keep our hearts from forgetting God and from becoming haughty and from hoping in the uncertainty of riches. We are to remember that not only do wealth and riches come from God, but we are to remember that each and every one of us will give an account of ourselves and our possessions to God. We will give an account of ourselves to God. If we learn anything from the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, we learn that our master will return and settle accounts with us. Whatever talents we've been given, at the end of the day, they are the master's talents. What is a talent? As J.C. Ryle said, anything whereby we may glorify God is a talent. Our gifts, our influence, our money, our knowledge, our health, our strength, our time, our senses, our reason, our intellect, our memory, our affections, our privileges as members of Christ's church, our advantages as possessors of the Bible, all, all our talents. And if we're to remain humble and mindful of God in seasons of peace and plenty and prosperity, we must remember that the day is coming when we will give an account to our master for what we did during our seasons of peace and plenty and prosperity. Secondly, We are to keep our hearts with all vigilance in seasons of chaos and busyness. In seasons of chaos and busyness. Now we all go through seasons when life seems to be unusually chaotic and overwhelmingly busy. And I would say that if this chaos and busyness are due to you fulfilling your biblical responsibilities to God to your family, and to the body of Christ, then good on you. If you're busy because you're occupied in some aspect of the Great Commission, then good on you. But oftentimes, people busy themselves with trivial things and things that are eternally insignificant. They've bought into the lie of the world that says that busyness in itself is a virtue. When in reality, the chaos and busyness in your life is due to the fact that you're entangled in things that, from a biblical perspective, you really should have nothing to do with. They're taking away from time, precious time, and distracting you from biblical priorities. That's not the main point I'm trying to make here. What I'm trying to say is that whenever you find yourself busy and whenever you find your life chaotic and it's not because of any trivial pursuits, but it's the result of you doing what God and his word has called you to do, there are a number of things that you need to guard your heart from. Number one, seasons of chaos and seasons of busyness can cause our hearts to neglect 
what is supremely important, namely communion with God in prayer and in his word. Communion with God and communion with him in in prayer and in his word. You can recall the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. They were a busy church. They were working. They were toiling. They were patiently enduring hardships in the city of Ephesus. They were busy testing those who were claiming to be apostles but were not. They were busy bearing up for the sake of Christ's name. But in all of this activity... They had lost the one thing that actually mattered and rendered everything else meaningless. Jesus said to them, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. In seasons of busyness, where you might even be busy with biblically good things, it's so easy for the heart to forget what is most important. And that is a living, vibrant relationship with the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. On the one hand, I want to lovingly warn those of you who are busy with things that you don't need to be busy with. Let me just get it over with and be the unpopular stick in the mud this morning. I no longer as a parent feel the world's pressure to put my sons in every sport league in the city. I see people and know people and work with people whose evenings and weekends are consumed with soccer practice, baseball practice, basketball practice, karate, and you name it. They go to work, they rush home, they rush one kid here, they rush another kid there, they quickly get a bite to eat, they come home, they go to bed, and they start over the next day. And before they know it, life is over. Their kids are out of the house. Their influence on their kids is not as strong as it was when the children were in the home. Family worship gets thrown out the window. The midweek prayer meeting gets pushed aside. Meaningful discussions at the dinner table with everyone present is something unheard of today. And God forbid that church on Sunday interferes with any of this. A tournament, a fundraiser, or whatever Because in the case of many people in this country, the worship of the living God and the gathering of the saints is the first thing that will be dropped. And to ease the conscience, many will tell themselves, it's okay. I can just download the sermon later. And I can listen to a sermon while I'm traveling from this game or that tournament. Friends, if you think that you can willingly disobey the will of God when he says in Hebrews 10 25 that his people are not to neglect the assembling of themselves together because you have something more important to do you need to examine your heart before the living God if you think that the Sunday morning gathering is just about showing up and receiving a biblical data dump into your brain so that in the event that you have something more important to do, you can just get that data dump later on in a sermon off the internet, your view of the gathering of the church is twisted and flawed. We gather, number one, because God calls us to gather, and that should be enough. Number two, we gather to worship him collectively. And individually, 
We, we gather to pray to him collectively and individually. We gather to hear from him collectively and personally. We gather to stir each other up to love and holiness. We gather to evangelize the lost in our midst and to take the time to make sure that they're understanding the gospel. When we have lost people in our midst, they're here on our home turf. And we're just taking every opportunity in this gathering to follow up with them afterwards, to make sure they're understanding the gospel. We gather to pray for one another, to encourage one another, to see to it that we are building each other up in our most holy faith. You can't get any of that from sermon audio or from YouTube. I'm not at all the doom and gloom type, nor do I wish for religious persecution to be unleashed in a greater measure in the United States. But I'll tell you this, if that does happen, if that day comes, if it becomes illegal to gather to worship the risen Christ in this country, there will be a purifying of people's priorities in the church. Those who truly belong to Christ will count the cost and drop this league, drop that club, and they'll do everything they can to gather with the church because the church will be all they have. My brothers and sisters, don't wait for that day. Don't wait for that day. May our hearts prioritize communion with the living God and the fellowship of the gathered assembly of God on the Lord's day. One of the dangers facing our hearts when we find ourselves busy and overwhelmed with things that really won't matter in eternity is that our hearts begin to push aside that which truly matters now. And even if we find ourselves busy and good with things that are God-glorifying, a similar danger is there. We read about this church again in Revelation chapter 2. Listen to what Joseph Seiss says about this church. The machinery still moved with the power of the original impulse. But the great moving spirit within them was losing its force. The outside of the tree stood fair and well-proportioned as ever, but mold and decay had commenced within. A pure creed and a right discipline still remained, but the heart was growing cold. The Savior saw how it was and spoke accordingly. And what, he says, dear friends, does Christ's all-searching eye behold in us with reference to this point? Has there been no wane in our love and zeal since we first gave ourselves to Jesus? Are we as much interested in the things of God and the soul as once? Are we as prompt and earnest in our private devotions and attendance on the means of grace as aforetime? Do we have the same low opinion of the vanities, pursuits, honors, and pleasures of this world as when we first set out to serve the Lord? Are we as strict and particular in holding on to the truth or word of God and as confident in venturing our trust and hopes upon it as at some other time we could mention? Are we as devoted to the church and as anxious and earnest and prayerful to build up the church and to foster the spirit of peace, harmony, and love as once? He points out, these people were not in a state of apostasy. There was still much activity. 
zeal for evangelic truth, earnest adherence to apostolic order, hatred of error and unrighteousness, and regard for purity of life. But all this may exist, and yet a hidden canker be eating away what no orthodoxy, no faith, no knowledge, no good works, no labor or patience and well-doing could atone for. It was still a decent, orderly, vigorous, exemplary, and efficient church, but there was inward weakening in that very thing which most essential, which was most essential, in that living love and fellowship of the soul with its Redeemer, which is the life of all true piety. God forbid that we who possess eternal life as the people of God, in the midst of all our busyness and chaos, forget what the very essence of eternal life is. John 17, 3. This is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Thirdly, If we are to keep our hearts with all vigilance, we are to do that even in seasons of discord and division. We are to keep our hearts in seasons of discord and division. At one time or another, we find ourselves in seasons marked by discord and division. It could be within a marriage, it could be within a family. It could be within extended family. It could be at work, co-workers. And sadly, it can even happen within the church. Seasons when you and I or another or others just don't see eye to eye on things. Perhaps there was an explosion in somebody. Someone or you gave full vent to their thoughts or you gave full vent to your anger and someone was hurt in the process. Maybe you slandered someone and they found out. Or maybe you were slandered and you found out. Well, if you're a Christian, you are called to do everything you can do to pursue peace in such situations. But that doesn't guarantee that peace will come easily or come immediately. And in these situations of discord and division, we are to exercise greater diligence in keeping and guarding our hearts. One of the dangers that faces our hearts in seasons like this is harboring hard thoughts toward others. That's the first thing that our hearts are in danger of in seasons like this is harboring hard thoughts towards others. These thoughts eventually consume our hearts. They eventually blind our hearts. And they strip our hearts from all sound judgment. Our hearts become focused and fixated on the faults and flaws of others and closed off to the prayerful self-examination that we need to see if there's any grievous way in us. If you've been wronged by an unbeliever, I want you to remember that he or she will face the wrath of God for all eternity unless they repent. Pray that God would grant them repentance. But if you've been wronged by a fellow believer and they are aware of their sin, the Puritan John Flavel gives some helpful advice. He says, if he is a godly man, there is light and tenderness in his conscience, 
which sooner or later will bring him to a sense of the evil of what he has done. If he is a godly man, Christ has forgiven him greater injuries than he has done to you. And why should not you forgive him? Another danger that faces the hearts of believers in seasons of discord and division is bitterness. Bitterness. Hebrews 12, 15 says, See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Lou Priolo says this, The scripture likens bitterness to a root. Roots have to be planted. So, what's the seed that sprouts into a root of bitterness when planted? It's a hurt. When someone hurts you, it's as if a seed has been dropped onto the soil of your heart. And you can choose to respond in two ways. You can either reach down and pluck up the seed by forgiving your offender, or you can begin to cultivate the seed by reviewing the hurt over and over again in your mind. He says, bitterness is the result of dwelling too long on a hurt. It's the result of not truly forgiving the offender. See to it that bitterness does not take root in your heart. Thirdly, another danger facing our hearts in seasons of discord and division is pride. Pride. When we become convinced that we have been wronged or that we are on the right side of this argument... It's so easy for pride to take the wheel of our hearts, leaving us completely blind to sound reason. Even if we've caused the offense and we're on the right side of a division, pride refuses to apologize. Pride does not like apologizing. Pride likes to fortify itself, insulate itself, and isolate itself. Pride refuses to forgive and to ask for forgiveness. Pride refuses to give the other person the benefit of the doubt. But pride, oh, demands the benefit of the doubt in every situation. William Grenall, the Puritan, said, Pride makes a man incapable of receiving counsel. Nebuchadnezzar's mind is said to be hardened in pride, Daniel 5.20. There is no reasoning with a proud man. He castles himself in his own opinion of himself and there stands upon his defense against all arguments that are brought. That's what pride does. If we are to keep our hearts in seasons of discord and division, number one, we must consider and consider regularly the mercy that God has shown to us. Remember the mercy that God has shown you. Think deeply upon the fact that though your iniquities had risen higher than your head and your sins had mounted up to the heavens, yet God, out of pure grace and profound mercy, canceled the record of your debt that stood against you with its legal demands. He nailed it to the cross in Christ who willingly bore your sin and forgave you all your trespasses against him. The truth is, your heart 
cannot come on Sunday morning and sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, and at the same time harbor hard thoughts toward others. You can't sing that song and then continue to water the plant of bitterness in your heart and shut yourself up in your castle of pride. You can't sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me and remain proud and cut off, shut off from others. John Piper said, most of our bitterness and anger towards others is rooted in an inability to profoundly be amazed at Christ's love for us in our sin. Well, fourthly and lastly for today, we are to keep our hearts with all vigilance in seasons of doubt and spiritual darkness. We are to keep our hearts in seasons of doubt and darkness. In those seasons when it seems like God is hiding his face from us. In seasons where it seems like we have completely lost our way. When it seems like we have lost the sense of his presence with us. In those seasons when the flesh is strong and it's raging like a wildfire and the spirit, our spirit is weak within us. When we feel like we have lost all assurance of belonging to Christ. Yes, even in such seasons we are to keep our hearts with all vigilance. And yes, we've all either experienced or will experience seasons like this at some point in our lives and it breaks my heart as a friend and pastor to know that some of you either are going through this or will go through seasons like this and I can only pray that you cling to the truth of the word of God in such seasons when we look at our lives and we can't see any fruit or faithfulness when it feels like the words of Habakkuk 3.17 are describing us The fig tree isn't blossoming. No fruit is on the vines. The produce of the olive has failed. And the the fields yield no food. When we feel like an absolute barren wasteland. Yet even in these seasons, dear friends, I should say especially in these seasons, we are to keep our hearts and guard them with all vigilance. And some might say, but what if in that season, I don't feel like I'm even saved? What if I don't even feel like I belong to Christ? What if in that season, I can't even sense God's presence with me? Let me ask you this question. Is our obedience to God contingent upon these prerequisites? Does God say, obey my voice, my child, Only if you feel like you're my child, only if you feel like you're saved, and only if you sense my presence with you. No, he calls us to follow him, to take up our cross, to obey his word, regardless of anything we feel. There are seasons when God hides his face from his people. We read about King Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles chapter 32 and verse 31, and how God, quote, left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. Close quote. God left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. 
Now, it wasn't God that needed to know anything. God knows all things. He knows everything about us. He knows our frame. He knows a word that's on our tongue even before we speak it. But he left Hezekiah to himself in order for Hezekiah to see what was in his heart. God caused Hezekiah to feel as if God had withdrawn himself from him for the purpose of revealing what was in his heart. God is a God who tests the hearts of his people. We read that over and over again in the word. He tests the hearts of his people. And one of the ways in which he does this is by making it seem as though he's withdrawn himself from us. We know that he won't. We know that he can't. But like Hezekiah, he leaves us to ourselves at times in order to test us. Will we still seek him if we can't feel him? Will we still seek him if we can't sense him? Will we still cry out to him if we can't detect his presence? If we feel like he's a million miles away from us? Will we still read and study and meditate upon the promises of his word if we feel like he's not there? Will our hearts still be preoccupied with his will if we can't sense his presence? What do we do on days like this? What do we do in seasons like this when days turn into weeks and weeks turn into months and there's still no fruit on the vine? What do we do in the day of trouble? Well, let's let the word of God answer that question. Turn to Psalm 77. Psalm 77. I want to point out seven instructions to take to heart whenever you're in a season of doubt and spiritual darkness. Seven instructions. This is a psalm describing the day of trouble. If there's one book in the Bible where we see the people of God going through a vast array of different seasons. It's the book of Psalms. Sometimes the people of God are overflowing with assurance. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. And there's other seasons where they're fearful and in danger and they lose assurance. It's in the book of Psalms. This is a psalm describing the day of trouble. Alec Motyer says this regarding Psalm 77. Rather than being offended at the brutal frankness of the psalm, we must be sure to learn its lesson. There can be a trouble so dire that even prolonged, earnest prayer, even the assurance of prayer being heard, even thoughts centered on God bring no relief. Let's see what we have in this psalm. Here's instruction number one coming at us from verses one and two. Let your heart cry out to God. Let your heart cry out to God. He says, I cry aloud to God. Aloud to God. And he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. So we see Asaph 
praying, and not just praying, but praying with passion. He is screaming out to God in this season of trouble. And he's even assured, verse 1, that God will hear him. His hands are stretched out, and he refuses to be comforted until he has God and that sense of God again. That's instruction number one. Let your heart cry out to God. Instruction number two is this, verse three. Let your heart remember God. Let your heart remember God. Look at verse three and four. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. Here's instruction number three. Verse 5 teaches us, let your heart consider the days of old. When you find yourself in seasons of doubt and darkness, cry out to God. Remember God. And thirdly, consider the days of old. Look at verse 5. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. He's remembering the past. Memory is such a good gift from God that is a means of personal revival and refreshment. Remember what God has done in your life. Remember who he has been to you in seasons of darkness before. Instruction number four, based upon verse six, is this. Let your heart sing to God. He says in verse six, I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. And notice the result of singing. Then my spirit made a diligent search. My spirit made a diligent search. You begin to ask the right questions. You begin to think soundly. You begin to think with sober judgment. What a means singing is. What a means music is to us. Again, all things were created by Christ and for Christ, and that includes music. So when you find yourself in such a season, let your heart, fourthly, sing to God. Number five, let your heart ask the right questions. That's verses seven through nine. Let your heart ask the right questions, the daring questions, if you will. Look at verses seven through nine. There's five questions he, he asks here. He says, will the Lord spurn forever? And never again be favorable? That's a dark place. That's a very dark place to be. And yet he's honest. And if there's one thing we learn about this psalm, it's that you are to be honest before God in those seasons. God, I feel like you're never again going to show me your favor. That's what he's doing here. Look at the second question in verse 8. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? This is the word he uses elsewhere for his covenant love, his covenant loyalty, his hesed. Are his promises at an end for all time? Verse 9, has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Selah. Alec Mutyer again is helpful on this point. He says the implication of verses 4 through 9 is that purely personal experience is too insecure a foundation on which to build a doctrine of God. We feel one way one day, another way another day. 
on a calm, trouble-free day? The answer to the questions in verses 7 through 9 would be obvious. But in this apparently prolonged period of soul-destroying adversity, the psalmist can ask the questions, but on the basis of experience, cannot venture a sure answer. In other words, up until this point, prayer has not worked. Remembering God has not worked. Singing has not worked. Considering the past has not worked. And that almost sounds blasphemous. But what the psalmist is showing us is that there comes a point in these seasons where we have to get out of our own personal subjective experience entirely out of ourselves and look on to the objective God who stands in immutable sovereignty, holy, 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 surrounded by angels on his heavenly throne, who was, who is, who is to come, and to look upon the things that he has done objectively in history to create and to redeem his people. That's where we go now in this sixth instruction in verses 11 and 12. Number six is, let your heart remember what God has done. And as I read verse 10 here, look at verse 10. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. So verse 10 can be translated a number of ways. It could say, or this is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. However this can be translated, the point is that of God for his people. Verses 11 and following. Matyar says, what he has done is a sure foundation on which to build an assured grasp of who and what he is, and therefore a confident basis for entreaty. When nothing else has worked, cast the eye of faith onto God's objective redemptive acts in history. Cast aside your own subjective experience, your own past, and fix your eyes and your heart on who God is and what he has done for his people. That's where he goes. Look at verse 11. He focuses on his works and his wonders. Verses 11 and 12. His works and his wonders. He says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I will remember, yes, your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Instruction number seven is in verse 13. Let your heart reflect on his holiness and greatness. Look at verse 13. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? He gets out of himself. He turns away from his crying, away from his tears, away from his reflection of the past and his experiences, and he says, God, your way is holy. Who is great like our God? You see, God is holy and great apart from any of our experiences, apart from our existence. He was holy and great before he said, let there be heavens and let there be an earth. Immutably and eternally holy and glorious. And the psalmist seems to be catching on to this. 
Well, in verses 16 through 18, he focuses on God's mastery over the use of the forces of creation. Look at this. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. In verse 19, he focuses on God's dominion over circumstantial barriers. Look at verse 19. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. And as we come to the end, he closes in verse 20 with focusing on God's providential shepherd-like care for his people. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Do you see how verse 10 transitions from subjective experience to objective acts of redemption on God's part in history? And that's where he ends. That's what lifts him up out of his pit. Verses 16 through 20 seem to trace the history of Israel from Egypt all the way to Canaan. The Red Sea, verse 16, the storm at Sinai, verses 17 through 18, the crossing of the Jordan River at the end of the wilderness wanderings, verse 19, and throughout the whole thing, God's shepherding care, verse 20. In seasons of doubt and darkness, when prayer doesn't seem to work, when remembering God doesn't seem to work, when singing doesn't seem to work, when considering your past experiences with God on the mountaintops and in the valleys, when that doesn't work, by all means, continue to do these things. God can use them. God has used them. But don't end with them. Your mind has to be set. Your heart has to be fixated on what God has done objectively in history for his people. In this instance, the psalmist is recognizing the great exodus out of Egypt. In our instance, living on this side of the New Testament, we can look back to the greater exodus, the greater Passover lamb, Jesus Christ who was sacrificed on our behalf so that the angel of death passes over all of his people. And he brings us through the wilderness of this world, sustaining us by his own body and blood. He is the bread that comes down from heaven. He is the one who leads us through the wilderness of this world and who will lead us through the Jordan of death and into the promised land where we will find an eternal Sabbath rest in his presence. This greater exodus is what he has accomplished for us. He is the true and better Moses that leads the people of God out of the Egypt of sin and death and into God's promised land of new creation rest. We are to fixate our minds on the gospel, on what God has done for us sinners in and through the matchless work of our conquering King, Jesus Christ. That's how to keep the heart in seasons of doubt and spiritual darkness, think upon who God is in his holiness and in his greatness. God is so holy that he is transcendent above everything we can imagine, and yet we must not think of God's holiness as his remoteness. We must not think of his greatness 
as merely him being far off and above and beyond everything. His holiness is such that though he is high and lofty, he lives and he dwells with the presence of those who are contrite to revive them, to cleanse them. That though he is high and holy and above all of our sin, yet he comes into this world. He comes to dwell amongst his broken people, his sinful people, his struggling people, and he revives them and he sustains them and he satisfies them and he saves them and he sanctifies them and he will bring them to glory. Let us dwell upon his holiness and his greatness and what he is and what he has done for us. Those are just some things for consideration this morning as we consider how to keep our hearts through some of the situations and circumstances we find ourselves in, in the wilderness of this world. Let us look to our God. Let's pray.